0: Hare Krishna, I welcome all to Every Day Chant Harinam conference call. Today we are very fortunate to have Hare grace graceful Mila Mataji um, to enlighten us on verse 25 from uh, Canto 6, Chapter 4. Uh, before um, we uh, proceed, I would like to read um, Mataji's um, introduction. I feel very fortunate, uh, personally, uh, to associate virtually like this with Mataji. Um, Grace Urmila Devi Dasi Mataji. Since 1973, um, she has been a practitioner and teacher of Bhakti Yoga, the process of loving devotion to link with the Supreme Lord and His devotees. Uh, She is an initiated disciple of um, Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, the founder acharya of the Hare Krishna movement. As a member of the renounced order of Manaprestha, she regularly visits temples and holy places worldwide to hold discourses on topics of yoga, mantra, meditation and living in spiritual consciousness within the world. She also published articles and books both for adults and children on the science of bhakti. Um, So we can find more details about Mataji, our class schedules, her personal bio data, the uh, projects Mataji is involved uh, like Govardhan and Radhakund on our website, urmiladevidasi.org, or G. Mataji also have a YouTube channel, which we can find um, on that page and also a Facebook page. Uh, Hare Krishna Mataji, please accept my respectful obeisances. All glories to Srila Prabhupada and uh, Guru Maharaj. Um, Hare Krishna. Mataji, please take over the call. Thank you so much for giving your wonderful association to us today. I just want to confirm
1: about the time. So, uh,
0: the class goes on for another hour and five minutes, is that correct? Yes, yes, Mataji. Yes. And
1: part of that time is for questions?
0: After that, there is 20, t- 20 minutes time for questions, if you have, or else you can uh, conclude early. So after in-
1: that is, so you go until almost nine o'clock?
0: Yeah, usually until until 8.15 Eastern time, the class, and then questions afterwards.
1: Okay, eight fifteen till the class, and then questions till eight yes, thirty. Yes. Okay. Ma'am. Excellent. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Okay, so we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto Six, Chapter Four, uh, Text Twenty Five. Do you chant Jayaratimadava?
0: Do you have anyone chant Jai Um Generally, uh, yeah. We uh, you. We sing, the speaker can sing the Radha Madhava. We all will be in mute because it's virtuous. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Otherwise,
0: you
1: have to like. Yeah. Okay. Jaya Radha Madhava,
0: Kunja Jaya Radha Madhava, gopi janabala bala girivara
1: gopi janabala bala girivara ya sasana nanda jana ya sasana nanda jana YAMUNATI ji YAMUNATI vanachai Yamuna ji Jayam Vishnupad Pramahamsa Praverajacharya Asadhar sada Shri Shrimad's divine grace aci bhakti ananda swami maharaj prabhadaki jai ISKCON founder acharya shila prabhadaki jai and antakoti vishnu varindaki jai Namacharya Shilaharidas Thakur Ki Jai Prem shikoh, Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nichananda Shi Adoya Jagadadhar Shivasadi Gora Bhaktivinoda Ki Jai Shi Shi Radhakrishna Gogopinay Shyamakunda Radhakunda Gidi Govardhana Ki Jai Rindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Mathura Ki Jai Navadvip Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Ki Jai Gangamaya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Joshi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhaktivinoda Ki Jai Gora all glories, All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Shri Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasthaya Bhuta Srimate Bhaktivedanta Bhakti Swami Niti Namane, Namaste Sarasvati Devi Goravani Pacharni Nivasa Sisunivari Pasvitya Desitarni. Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Padakamalam Sri Guru vaishnavam Vaishnavamscha Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Ragana Tam vitamstam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lavitashri Vishakam Vitamscha Manchakapatju Vishakupasanavya Vachal Pachitanam Nam Pavanayovaishnavinamon Maha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So Canto 6, Chapter 4 the Hamsa Prayers, Text 25. Deho sa manavo bhuta matram Atmanam cha paramyat Sarvampumam veda gunams ca Na veda sarvagna anantam ide Deha, this body. Asavaha, the life airs. Akshaha, the different senses. Manava, the mind, understanding, intellect and ego. Bhutamatram. The five gross material elements and the sense objects form taste, sound and so on. Atmanam themselves Anyam any other Cha and Vidhu No Padam Beyond Yat that which sarvam, everything, puman, the living being, veda, knows, gunan, the qualities of the material nature, cha, and taekna, knowing those things, na. Not. Veda knows. Sarvagnam, unto the omniscient. Anantam, the unlimited. Ede, I offer my respectful obeisances. Srila translation. Because they are only matter, the body, the life airs, the external and internal senses, The five gross elements and the subtle sense objects form, taste, smell, sound, and touch cannot know their own nature, the nature of the other senses, or the nature of their controllers. But the living being, because of his spiritual nature, can know his body, the life airs, the senses, the elements, and the sense objects, and he can also know the three qualities that form their roots. Nevertheless, although the living being is completely aware of them, He is unable to see the supreme being who is omniscient and unlimited. I therefore offer my respectful (coughs) obeisance unto him. purport. Material scientists can make an analytical study of the physical elements, the body, the senses, the sense objects, and even the air that controls the vital force, but still they cannot understand that above all these is the real spirit soul. In other words, the living entity, because of his being, a spirit soul, can understand all the material objects, or when self-realized, he can understand the Padamatma, upon whom yogis meditate. Nevertheless, the living being, even if advanced, cannot understand the Supreme Being, the personality of Godhead, for he is ananta unlimited in all six opulence. Just one second, I need to... Sorry. Okay. Tehosavoksha manavo matram atmanamanyam cha vidu paramyat sarvam pumam veda gunam sthitajno na veda sarva gnam anantam ide Because they are only matter, the body, the life airs, the external and internal senses. The five gross elements and the subtle sense objects, form, taste, smell, sound, and touch, cannot know their own nature, the nature of the other senses, or the nature of their controllers. But the living being, because of his spiritual nature, can know his body, the life airs, the senses, the elements, and the sense objects, and he can also know the three qualities that form their roots. Nevertheless, although the living being is completely aware of them, He is unable to see the Supreme Being who is omniscient and unlimited. I therefore offer my respectful obeisances unto them." So here Daksha is talking about uh, what we can perceive, that reality and our perception of reality are different. Now we all experience this fact practically daily in our lives, where we misperceive something or we don't perceive it at all. You know, we, we don't see something that's right in front of us. You know, my mother used to look for her glasses when they were on her head. I had a friend telling me that she was looking for her phone when she was holding it. So we don't perceive things that are directly in front of us. We're unaware of, of much of the, of the gross objects around us. And we certainly have very little awareness of higher things. The first lecture that I heard from Srila Prabhupada in person, Srila Prabhupada was talking about how people want to see God, and yet they cannot even see the soul. He said, Your father dies, and you see your father's body, and you say, My father is gone. But what is gone? What is gone is the soul. The body is still there. All the elements of the body, right after death, all the elements of the body are still there, but you can't see the soul. And he said, you never saw the soul. He said, so if you never saw the soul, how can you aspire to see God, who's the soul of the souls, who's the super soul? You say, I want to see God, and you can't even see the soul. We don't even see the mind. I mean, some people can see ghosts, which means they're seeing the mind, but generally we don't see the mind. We know people have a mind, but we're not able to perceive it directly. Now, even being aware of that, we would still want to say that the best source of knowing that something is true, at least for ourselves, is indeed direct perception. Right? There's three sources of knowledge I mean, sometimes more is given. Jiva Goswami Madhvacharya sometimes gives more. But Prabhupada talks about, right, Shabda, Anuman, and Pratyaksha. Pratyaksha is you directly perceive something. Like right now I'm looking out my window and I see a bush full of pink roses and I see the sun shining through the trees as the sun has risen about an hour ago. I'm directly perceiving that. And then Anuman, is logic based on perception? So logic would be the rose bush is healthy. Logic would be uh, sunrise was a little while ago. You know, that's logic based on how, where I can see the position of the sun in the sky and how bright it is outside. That's my direct perception. And then Anuman, I have logic based on that perception. And then Shabda is I'm hearing from someone else. And ideally, Shabda means I'm hearing from God or I'm hearing from the scriptures. And that hearing may give me knowledge that's beyond my sense perception and my logic. Just like I've never been to Mongolia, right? So, how do I know there is such a place as Mongolia? I've never been to Antarctica. How do I know there's such a place as Antarctica? I've heard it from someone I consider to be an authority. I can see pictures, I can see videos, and so forth. Of course, I don't really know that there's an Antarctica unless I visit Antarctica, unless I perceive it myself. But then can I say I really know it? I mean, how would I know where I am? I'd have to have all sorts of other knowledge. I'd have to go there by plane or by boat, and I'd have to be able to have, let's say I go there by boat, I'd have to have navigational skills, to know where I was going, to know that the place I was going was the same as what I was told as Antarctica. I mean, ultimately my knowledge is very meager. And I generally accept things because other people around me accept things. So I'm traveling on a highway and the signs say I'm going to Washington, D.C. and there's a sign you are now in Washington, D.C. and the other people around me say you are now in Washington, D.C. And so I accept that that's where I am. <laughs> and I accept that, uh, that something I see on a map or a globe that has some indicator of Washington, D.C. is the same geographical location that I am in at that time. But I don't actually know that on in, in any kind of real sense. I'm having a tremendous amount of faith in, in other authorities. And so my so-called knowing... That I'm in Washington, D.C., is sort of a combination of hearing from authorities that I trust, from my uh, direct perception, and the logic I'm using to understand it. But we can understand from this slight analysis that there's not much we can know. And ultimately, each of us bases our life on things that we perceive. Therefore, when Krishna is describing ultimate reality, right, Rajavidya, Rajaguyam, Idamutamam, it's something that's directly perceived. So, how are we going to know what's what's true? So, first, we're going to look at the main topic that Daksha is talking about in this verse. In that, uh, we can perceive what I would call down. We would, can perceive what's lower than us but we cannot generally perceive what's higher than us. Even our ability to perceive what's lower than us is very limited. And then also in this verse, we're next going to look at the fact that he says we can perceive um, what is up. Uh, it is possible. Uh, this is more what Srila Prabhupada is talking about in the purport than the, than what Daksha is talking about in the verse, is that although we cannot perceive what's higher than us, at the same time we can perceive what's higher than us. And the final thing I want to talk about is hinted at uh, in the verse with anantam ide, I offer my uh, obeisances. So I just, what do we do once we can perceive what is higher? How do we behave? How do we react? So we can't generally see what's lower than us. So Daksha is giving the example that matter cannot perceive itself. Matter, the sort of the definition of matter, is that which is not conscious of itself. It's really a definition of matter as compared to spirit. What's living and what's non-living. What's non-living has no self-awareness. It doesn't know it exists. I mean, we can also say the non-living things have no will. They have no desire, at least no desire that we're able to perceive. I I mean, I can't know for sure whether or not my desk is aware of its own existence. I I have no way of of actually knowing that. Maybe my desk does know that it exists. Maybe rocks do know that they exist. They don't appear to. But certainly what we call matter doesn't seem to, to manifest any kind of will. I mean, we notice will and desire in very, very basic simple low-level living beings bacteria You know plants and things like that we notice there's some Manifestation of desire there's definitely a desire to exist There's a will to live there's a will to exist that we don't see at least we can't perceive it if it's there we have no way of measuring it in what we call matter so my desk doesn't manifest any desire whatsoever to live. You know, if I burn my desk, it, it's inert; it doesn't react in any way. Now, one could say, well, the same is true of plants; that they don't, but they do react. There's there's a, a lot of experiments that show that plants react quite strongly if someone in the area is just angry at them, or thinking of killing them. So there is some reaction in the plants. The plants will send out chemical uh, signals to other plants, trying to save their life. So we do find this kind of reaction, a measurable reaction, even in the immovable, silent living entities what to speak of the little movable living entities, the little bacteria and the little amoebas and so forth. And there's nothing that we can measure in matter like that. So, And then Shastra tells us that matter is not conscious of itself. Now there is a way in which matter is conscious, but that is not particularly germane to the class today, but just to be complete we will mention that because matter is part of the universal body of the Lord, the Lord is conscious of matter. So by analogy, like I, the soul who's in this body, I am conscious of this body. Right? This is what Doctor is saying. I'm conscious of my body, and my body is alive. Right? That my body is made up of individual living cells. So my life as the as the the big soul in the body, is spreading through the body and allowing all the little cells to be alive. And I am certainly conscious of them. I am conscious of, their, of where their position is in, in space. I'm conscious of whether they're feeling pleasure or pain and so many things. However, there's parts of my body that are not alive, and that is the ends of my nails and the ends of my hair. And actually, my outer layer of skin is not alive either. But I am aware of the outer level of my nails and I am aware of the outer portion of my hair and the outer portion of my skin, although that part is not alive. So the, the living cells in my body are aware of themselves. I am aware of them and they are aware of themselves. Whereas the ends of my nails, I am aware of them, but they are not aware of themselves. But I am aware of them from the inside. It's not, I'm not aware of the ends of my nails in the same way I'm aware of the ends of your nails. I'm aware of the ends of your nails. I can see them. I could touch them. I suppose I could taste them. Uh, But I'm not experiencing them from the inside. Whereas with my nails, I'm experiencing them from the inside. So Krishna is, that's the best way I can explain it. So Krishna is experiencing so-called dead matter from the inside. It's not just that he's able to see my desk. He's within my desk. He's within every atom of my desk. His energy pervades my desk. And therefore, when I touch my desk, when I use my desk, he is aware of that, not just because he can see me doing that, like I could see your fingernails, but because he is within the desk and the desk is within him. Yes, one who sees me everywhere and who sees everything in me. I am never lost to him and he is never lost to me. So in that sense, in the sense of Krishna, uh, matter has consciousness. Therefore we say sarva idam brahma. Everything is ultimately spiritual. But while it has consciousness in the sense that it, Krishna, it has, it, Krishna is conscious of it, it's part of his body, it is not conscious of itself. And therefore matter itself, it cannot perceive itself and it cannot perceive other aspects of matter, it cannot perceive living beings, the desk in and of itself is not aware that I am putting my computer on it, or that I am leaning on it, or that I am moving it. Krishna is aware of that, but the desk is not. Now, even if we look at very low-level living beings, their awareness of what's lower than them is very limited. Right? I mean, and their awareness of what's higher than them is almost non-existent. I mean, to what extent is a bug aware that I exist. I mean, a mosquito is is able to smell my carbon dioxide and maybe my sweat or something like that and think there's a meal, but I really don't believe that the mosquito has any awareness that, you know, I'm sucking Ermila's blood right now. It just, it's not, it's really not aware like that. You know, when I pick roses from the garden, sometimes the, bo- the roses have some bugs, usually earwigs, that are hiding in the roses. And so I want to put those earwigs outside and the earwig doesn't understand that I'm a living being (laughs) that's picking it up and putting it outside. It just thinks I'm flying through the air and it becomes frightened. Right, it it can't understand what's above it and it can hardly understand what's below it. You know, if there's some little ant walking on my windowsill looking outside, you know, I'm looking out the window and I see the rose bush, and I see the trees, and I see the sunlight, but if an ant is looking out the window, it's not able to understand what it's seeing. Now, what to speak if I look out my door, and I see the the gravel path that goes to the parking lot, that goes to the driveway, that goes to the road, and goes to the highway, and I know all of that, but again, some bug or a dog, even, you know, even a dog, if you take the dog, the dog doesn't, really understand how all of these things are connected. Uh, So we also, as humans, we can understand partially those things that are lesser than us, but we're really going to struggle to understand what's above us. We might not see it at all. Like the bugs, you know, the earwig isn't even aware that I'm walking around in the same room. Even when I pick the earwig up, it's not aware of it. So we are not aware of more subtle beings that are in our own environment. You know, the demigods, what to speak of the demigods, I mean even even more subtle beings that are far lower than demigods. You know, there's, there's subtle beings that are in charge of every mountain and every river and every species of tree and definitely in the garden outside my window, there are all kinds of subtle living beings that are in charge of the plants and in charge of, of so many things you know in in Iceland the the government has some awareness of what's called the, what they call the hulu folk which is uh, subtle beings, Uh kind of like you say like elves or fairies or uh, you know whatever they're called in different cultures That are in charge of the the environment and in Iceland they don't do any construction project uh, without uh, consulting with the hulu folk and without making some arrangement for the hulu folk even though people can't generally see them you know so we can't generally see them some people claim to have seen these other types of beings uh, but generally we don't see them yet they're in our environment I mean, we don't even usually see the microscopic living beings. So how are we going to perceive God? That's what Daksha says here. He says, okay, you know, your, your nails can't perceive themselves, but you can perceive your nails, you can perceive the window, you can perceive the desk. All right, so you're higher than matter, but you can't perceive God. Is there any way we can perceive God? Is there any way we can perceive what's higher than us. Now, we've already discussed that we can perceive what's higher than us if we hear from authority, but that's that's not really satisfying, is it? It's just not really satisfying. You know, somebody comes and says, I've been to Antarctica. Well, okay, but that's not really our perceiving Antarctica. Even if I see videos of Antarctica, right, and I read about Antarctica, (laughs) It's not, it's not the same. You know, so I can see, you know, some artist's rendition of Krishna. I can read the descriptions of Krishna in the Shastra. But I want to actually perceive God directly. Right, I I read once about this one man who lived out in nature and practiced regular meditation. And after 10 years of these austerities, he was able to see the the minor deities, the, the you know, the fairies and, and things like that. So you know, and, and so many people were fascinated and they oh I want to see too, I want to see too. Just hearing from someone else, it wasn't it wasn't enough. So how can we do this? We can do this by expanding our own consciousness to make our consciousness higher than it is now. And being able to do this is a special boon of the human body, as opposed to the animal bodies, insect bodies, tree bodies. Generally speaking, when a soul has a body lower than a human being, they don't have the ability to expand their consciousness beyond the constraints of whatever body they have. But we do we can actually expand our awareness, our perception beyond the constraints of our Kali Yuga human body. I mean, even on a material level, this is not difficult to understand. An educated person understands and perceives more than an uneducated person. Yes, we all know that just like we can all read. I'm assuming everyone hearing this class can read. So what is reading? It, it's little marks on you know, a paper or a screen or something. It's little marks that we've learned to associate with certain sounds, and we've learned to associate those sounds with certain meanings. But without being educated in being able to read, We're not able, you know, a book looks like little marks on paper. Whereas when you're educated, you pick up that book, you read it, and you're transported to another world. So because you have education, you're able to have a higher level of awareness. That's materially speaking. So why shouldn't it be true spiritually speaking as well? So how does one do that? Well, one way that one does that is to move up through the gunas. When someone's in tamagun, their ability to perceive is very covered. One can compare it to a window with a dark shade over it. You really can't see much of anything. And when when Krishna talks about the knowledge of tamagun, he says it's very meager. Somebody who's in Tamagoon, they know their work, you know, they they know whatever skill or craft is needed in their work, whether they're engineering bridges or they're in a fast food restaurant, you know, cooking French fries. They know how to do their work. And they don't really know much more than that. They're not really thinking philosophically about things. You know, somebody who's in Tamagoon, they're mostly interested in just Having animal comforts eating sleeping mating and defending having a basic Comfortable life and they know what to do like an animal it knows how to find food and it knows how to Find shelter or build a shelter Protect their family their mate their young and so forth and that's kind of the knowledge of Tamagun It doesn't extend much beyond that at all then in Rajagun we have a whole understanding of religion and Dharma and philosophy culture. Prabhupada says basically, you know, Rajagun is the basis of human society. But when one's consciousness is in Rajagun, although one is perceiving far, far more than Tamagun, one's perception remains on the external platform. So in Rajagun you see here is a black woman and here is a white man and here is someone from China and here is a dog and here is a tree. You, you, you perceive living beings as their external form. And your concepts of dharma and religion and righteousness in Rajagun are what we basically call Varnashram. You know, okay, I'm a student, what's my duty? I'm I have a family, what's my duty? I'm retired, what's my duty? I'm getting old, what's my duty? You know, I'm an engineer, what's my duty? I'm a teacher, what's my duty? So you see our duties in terms of you know, the age and marital status of our body. We see our duties in terms of what kind of occupation I have. So we're seeing our duties in terms of, of again, it's, it's very external based. So if you come up to sattvagun, then one's ability to perceive becomes greatly enhanced. In sattvagun, one can see the subtle. One becomes aware of the subtle aspects of reality and in higher levels of sattva-gun, one starts to become aware of the spiritual at least to some extent but in sattvagun one is not one's awareness is still stunted because in sattvagun one is still very self centered in a materialistic egotistical way people in sattvagun are you know oh i'm really so spiritual <laughs> That's kind of their ego thing. You know, I'm so balanced, I'm so spiritual, I wear crystals, and and that kind of thing. So it's still stuck. So the way to really have expanded consciousness is to go beyond the gunas. To go, you know, like we were saying, Thomas is like a dark shade on a window. Rajas is like a sheer... Curtain on a window. Sattva like a window with no curtain. And going beyond the gunas, it's like you're actually going outside. I was uh, teaching a class the other day in a room that had glass doors, and the glass doors were open, and so the room was flooded with sunlight. But it was also very noisy outside, so I said, why don't we close the doors? And although the doors were made of glass, as soon as they were closed, the light in the room markedly decreased. It was, it was very noticeable. And I said, yes, this is the difference between bhakti and sattva. So how do we go beyond the gunas? Well, there's four types of yoga that can take us beyond the gunas. These can exist in pure or mixed forms. Although, there's one class I heard recently where Srila Prabhupada put things basically in two categories. But let's look at each of them individually and then we'll see about grouping them. So one category is karma yoga. I go beyond the gunas by doing the kind of work that's done in Rajagun, but I do it with the mentality of sattva I do it with the mentality that I am the soul. I do it with the mentality that my purpose is not to enjoy the fruits of my work in Rajagun or tamaguna, or even on a subtle level in sattva but that the, the purpose of my work is to realize that I'm a soul. Purpose of my work is salvation, to go beyond Dharma, Artha, Kama, to go to moksha, to go to liberation. And Krishna says that one gets peace, Twajachantin uh, Kalevaram, at the end of this renunciation of trying to enjoy the fruits of one's work. One gets peace and in a state of peace one can feel, as Krishna says in the second chapter, happiness. And one becomes aware of the spiritual. One starts to have an awareness at least of the universal form of the Lord, and perhaps of the Brahman form of the Lord. Then there's Jnana Yoga. So Jnana Yoga is a way of detaching, and Karma Yoga, by the way, is very popular in many of the religions of the world. Work in the world as a good person, but do it for the glory of God. So many, many religions, people are just in Rajagun. You know, be a good person in the world. The best way to be spiritual is to be a good person in the world so many people, how do you worship God? You know, I just try to be a nice person. So that that's very much Rajagun. But those who are doing karma yoga, I and then mean, there's some religions who preach sattvagun, you know, have peace and harmony and equilibrium and so forth. You know, uh, present moment awareness and that kind of thing. But in there are some religions who preach karma yoga that work as if you're a pious person in the world. But do that for the sake of God. Do it out of love for God. Do it out of connection with God. That's Karma yoga. Okay. Then, Yan yoga is very, very popular among people who call themselves spiritual but not religious. And I would say that it's also very popular among people who wouldn't even call themselves spiritual. That gyan yoga has become extremely, extremely popular in the world today as a way of getting rid of material miseries. So gyan yoga is you know if we talk again about present moment awareness mindfulness that's very much zen yoga where you meditate on being the observer of the thoughts and feelings and desires that flow through your body and mind you become uh, detached from both attachment and aversion you remain neutral and equipoised So, person who does this becomes quite happy and can realize Brahman and come to a higher level of awareness. Then there's Jn Yoga. So, Jn Yoga is what Chula Prabhupada refers to in today's purport, where he says that the yogis can realize the Paramatma. So, Jn Yoga traditionally, Jn Yoga is only done by those who've already achieved perfection in Karma Yoga or Jn Yoga, Uh, and sometimes. You know, the yoga ladder is you start as karma yogi, then you become a gyan yogi, and then you can become a dhyan yogi, a meditative yogi. But generally, you can't even become a meditative yogi unless you've achieved a high level of realization and peace. You have to achieve peace. You can achieve peace through karma yoga, through detachment of the fruits of your work, and you can achieve peace through gyan yoga, which is a, a subtle detachment. It's a detachment from thoughts, feelings, and desires. Because you can't do dhyan unless you're peaceful. I'm sure we've all experienced that. You know, try to sit down to do any kind of meditation if you're not peaceful. You just can't. You can't do that first step of pratyahara, withdrawing your mind from external things. What to speak of dharana, holding what, you're med- holding what you want to meditate on. What to speak of dhyan, which is meditating on what you're holding. So the process is first you withdraw your awareness, pratyahara. then you hold from the external, then dharana you hold the internal, then dhyana, you meditate on what you're holding internally, then samadhi, you meditating on what you're holding internally becomes an effortless flow. But if you can't do the first step to Prachidhara, how are you going to do the other steps? And how are you going to do the first step of Prachidhara if you're not peaceful? Uh, therefore, jain Yoga is not meant for the general public. Of course, today, has become, meditation has become extremely popular among the general public, <laughs> even those who are not already peaceful. And, uh, you know, they usually focus on the asanas, and sometimes on the asanas and the pranayama. Often they don't even do yam and niyam. <laughs> so they're not really going to be able to do much jian. Uh but the, the fact is that just by doing pranayama and asana, you're going to change some of the way that the chemicals function in your body because the pranayama and asana are also meant to invoke peace. And by doing that, a person does become more mentally and physically healthy. But you're not really going to access the higher levels, which is what we're talking about today. But through jnana yoga, you can also directly perceive the paramatma in the heart. Now, all three of those, Karma Yoga, Gyan Yoga, and Dyan Yoga, as I was hearing Prabhupada say the other day, that they're really going down to up. You're taking where you are now and through your own efforts of renouncing the fruits or renouncing one's inner attachment or through the mechanical arrangement of breathing and postures and so forth, you are mechanically expanding your consciousness in order to find the supreme in order to find liberation, in order to find the supreme, in order to access higher beings, in order to access a higher awareness. Now, bhakti yoga, we certainly do renounce the fruits of our work, and we do exercise subtle detachment, and we do meditate. But our bhakti yoga process really is is going from up to down. It's a descending process, as Prabhupada would say. That what we're doing is we're trying to serve God, so hopefully he'll be merciful to us and and he'll reveal himself to us. Like Bhaktisanta said, don't try to see God act in such a way that God will want to see you. So we're not doing our sadhana, which may resemble some aspects of karma yoga, gyan yoga and Dhyana yoga, as a way that I'm going to reach up and find what's higher. We're doing this as a way to say, Krishna, I love you, I want to serve you, And therefore he reveals to us. Now what's wonderful about bhakti yoga is first of all it's acknowledging the reality that there's only so much I can't understand by my own reaching up. And second of all it's going to give us a lot more revelation (laughs) than we could ever achieve on our own accord. In fact Prabhupada says repeatedly that the other forms of yoga need some touch of bhakti in order to be successful. Because we can't you know, conquer the kingdom of God by force. There has to be some revelation. Right? Bhakti Mam Abhijananti Yavanyas Chasmi Tatvata Tatombam Tatvato Yatva Vishate Tat anantaram. Yatum drastum chatvana pravestam chaparantipa. Yeah. We have to it it
0: it Krishna has to
1: reveal himself. My my mama, my We can't force God to reveal Himself. You know, and actually, these other methods of yoga are meant to to have more than mood of bhakti. So, by having by trying to cultivate service and love, which is what bhakti is all about, uh, God may want to reveal Himself. Even then, Prabhupada says that we cannot understand him completely. I mean, Prabhupada often says that Krishna can't understand himself completely, that he's always expanding and his knowledge of himself is expanding, Then he's expanding and his knowledge of himself is expanding. I mean, that would be boring if, if that wasn't the case, right? Krishna is very dynamic. His knowledge of himself is dynamic. Others' knowledge of himself is also dynamic. Yes? I like that. Now, what's really interesting is that the way Bhakti Yoga works is again, you try to love the Lord, you try to get attached to the Lord, Maya Shakamana and you serve the Lord that way he reveals himself. Then what do you do when he reveals himself? And such as I said, this is the last thing we want to look at today, is this is what how Daksha ends. Anantam Ide. I offer my obeisances to the unlimited. As Prabhupada writes here. The supreme being who is omniscient and unlimited, I therefore offer my respectful obeisances unto him. So what happens when we do see above ourselves, when we do see that which is higher than ourselves, and we see he who is the highest, the Lord, we offer obeisances. So this is what's interesting, that the way we see the Lord is through service and love. He reveals himself, and after we perceive him, uh, what do we do? We serve him and we love him. And then we perceive him more. And then we serve and love him more. And then we perceive him more. And then we serve and love him more. Now, we should mention that not everyone who sees the Lord serves him and loves him. When when Krishna was on this planet, when Lord Ramachandra was on this planet, so many living beings saw them and just thought that they were another person. I mean, even Duryodhana saw Krishna manifest a universal form And he still didn't understand, oh, Krishna is a supreme being. He didn't understand what he was seeing. He didn't properly interpret, properly understand what he was seeing. And again, we all, as I was saying in the beginning, we're all doing this. We're all perceiving things and not interpreting them properly all the time. I mean, demons can even see the Lord and instead of falling in love with him and wanting to serve him, they can just decide they want to hate him and kill him. So, it's not guaranteed. You know, sometimes we might think, well, the reason that I'm not a pure devotee is that God is hiding from me. It's his fault. That if God were to appear to me, if he were to make himself known to me, naturally I would surrender to him. But the reality is not like that. The demons see God and they don't surrender to him. You think about um, Kaliyavana when when Krishna ran away from the battlefield to attend to Rukmini's letter. And he also went to take care of King Wichikunda who was in the cave. So Kalyavana was following Krishna. And he could understand, oh, this is the personality that Narada Muni told me about. So he could understand it was Krishna. But still he was going to kill him. <laughs> that was his intention. Kaliya, when he saw Krishna, he thought also, oh, how beautiful he is. Let me kill him. Right? Kamsa had been told so many times that Krishna was Vishnu but Kamsa's mood was to kill him. Ravana had been told that Rama is Vishnu. So it's not like that. Therefore, I'm thinking about the uh, first time that we were meeting with Srila Prabhupada in his room in Chicago 1974. And my father asked whether or not it was okay if he came to the temple, even though he was not a devotee. I mean, later he became something of a devotee. But anyway, at that point, he said, I'm coming to visit my daughter and my son-in-law, I'm not really coming to see Krishna. He said, I have my own religion. And Prabhupada said, yes, there can be many religions. He said, just like we are in Chicago, and there are many planes going to Chicago. He said, but they have to know they are going to Chicago. Otherwise, what is the meaning of many planes? And if you think about that, So right now in the sky, there are so many planes going to so many places. Only some of them are going to Chicago. And the pilot has to know that they're going to Chicago. (laughs) It's not just some random thing. So Prabhupada said a real religion means to know God and to love him. So if we think of how many things claim to be religions, but they have no knowledge of God, very or very minimal knowledge of God, and with very minimal knowledge of God, it's very difficult to love. But if we focus on trying to know God and to love him, then we can perceive beyond ourselves. We can perceive God. We can perceive God in his name. We can perceive God in the deity. We can perceive God in the light of the sun. We can perceive God in our our life breath, moving our our food through our digestive system. We can perceive God in our intelligence and our ability. We can perceive God in others' amazing ability. We can perceive God in the wind. We can perceive God everywhere. For one who sees me everything, everywhere and sees everything in me, I am never lost to him, nor is he ever lost to me. So through bhakti yoga, we can perceive God. We can perceive the universe as the body of God. We can perceive the hand of God in our lives and in the lives of others. We can perceive his personal presence. Samshama once we have love then we can see him everywhere. So what Daksha is saying here is not absolutely true. He says although the living being is completely aware of the material things he is unable to see the supreme being. We can see the supreme being if we have love. So that is the essence of bhakti yoga. And then we will know. Then it said, one who can know Krishna knows everything. Now that doesn't mean that all of a sudden I know how to fix a car, (laughs) or make a pizza, or build a bridge, or teach somebody algebra. That's not what it means. I had somebody argue with me once that Shilaprabha knew all the languages of the world. And I said, well, he would not have agreed with you. If you said to him, do you know Spanish, he would say no. So it's not like that. But one who knows God knows everything in the sense of knows the essence of everything. One who, one who knows God sees the ultimate pattern and harmony of, of everything. And then we actually can see, we actually can hear. My like Krishna says in Sattvagun, all the gates of the body are illumined by knowledge. But to speak of beyond sattva-gum, is still self-centered, still covered. So that is what we are aiming for in our Krishna consciousness. And as we progress in Krishna consciousness, we should start having a growing awareness of the presence of God in every aspect of our lives. So I think we're opening it up now to questions and comments. You Thank
2: you. Yes, I'll go to Prabhupada, how may I serve you? Oh, uh, it was uh, such a uh, nice class, Mahathirji, after uh, a long time, we have uh, the uh, really scholarly uh, uh, class and also uh, touching in the... Um, very very really come across uh um that we you'll hear about um uh the various aspects of bhakti but really uh, some a lot of times a lot of us uh, the basics are not covered like the gun the three modes of material nature and the yoga ladder you have touched upon those things in a so nice way and uh, everything uh, uh, connected everything uh, so nicely to bhakti, uh, to uh, make us understand, realize again and again uh, where bhakti stands and who, why uh, bhakti is the most, I mean, uh, most sublime uh, way uh, to reach Krishna. Uh, so it was so nice uh, and so refreshing, and uh, I, I, uh, it was reminiscent of the way Prabhupada used to uh, uh, preach to, uh, to Western audience. Uh, so very rarely would Prabhupada touch upon the very finer aspects of bhakti, like uh, uh, what uh, Jiva Goswami would have uh, spoken, for example. So, uh, because a lot of times, uh, even though uh, our uh, some of the I mean, we may, may have been fed with uh, so much of uh, bhakti aspects, uh, knowledge of bhakti, but a lot of times our basic philosophies are not uh, uh, sometimes called grounded because they're not touched upon. Many times on the uh, I from my little understanding on very poor intelligence, and they're not touched up uh, upon my many lectures. So, nicely done it. Thank you, Mataji. Uh, please, uh, uh, accept my humble obeisances. Uh, and uh, your class of nectarian, uh, so uh, fulfilling uh, in all every respect from uh, covering the ground, uh, all, ground up all the way uh, to the hotel. Uh, uh seeing where we are, why, why it is uh, so sublime, and so uh, the, uh, all the process, um, and also uh, with reference to the Daksha prayer here, uh, thank you, Martha, you please uh, 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 give us more and more information in the future, and uh, continue to uh, enlighten and purify um, us. Hi, Hare
0: Krishna, thank you so much. Hare Krishna, Masterji. Hare, uh, Hare I think Krishna. once again my respect, Kalavati. Because as Prabhu mentioned, um, you have touched, you have made so many uh, things so clear that I have a take-home like how you mentioned, like upside uh, going from up, down, and down up. That uh, when you are explaining the different yogas, it's so much clear all the things, and we are very fortunate to have your association. And I personally want to. Uh, express my gratitude um, because um, uh, when I had kids and I started raising them, your books, um, your uh, lectures, um, and then uh, I ordered all the books that you have printed and they have been my guide and you have been my guide um, to raise the children in Krishna Consciousness. My koti koti done pronounced to you, Mataji for doing uh, such wonderful thing and being, an in, being instrumental in our lives in Rising Kids. So I just don't want to miss this opportunity to personally express my gratitude to you. Um, thank you so much, Mataji.
1: Well, well thank you. I, I would like to ask any of you if you've purchased any of my books and you like them, please, please write a review on Amazon. When there's positive reviews, then the books get promoted more widely and then more and more people can find out about them and get them. So if if you would like to, to help me with this, I would be very, very grateful. If you'd like to help me and help more people, uh, just 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 write a review on Amazon, please, of any of my books that you like. Does anyone else have any other questions? So far we have had two comments and no questions. <laughs> anybody have any question or anything they want to discuss? Yep,
0: please devotees. Go ahead if anybody have any questions.
3: Hare Krishna, Mataji. Madhanat Padam to you. Sheprapat ki jai, Guru Maharaj ki jai. So this is Rupini Padma Devi Dasi from Orlando, Florida. And oh. I'm so thankful to you. Jai Shri Mataji for having uh, to connect us with you. Uh, you're such a senior devotee. And uh, it is actually just like a, I, uh, it's like a dream come true. <laughs> because, uh, you know, somehow uh, we had a, we didn't have a class yesterday. And uh, so I, I had made a note in my May calendar that, Before 18th, uh, uh, Mataji can come, otherwise she's traveling. So I grabbed the opportunity that 18th is a little far (laughs) next week. So thank you so much for coming, Mataji, and enlightening us. My question is that uh, uh, like uh, towards the end of your class, they say, if you love Krishna, then you love everyone. That's the thing, right? There's a a slogan that goes around. You know, you love Krishna, love everyone. But Mataji, uh, around our place, there are people you know who are so much immersed in the mode of passion and ignorance that uh it's very hard for us to see the their sattvic qualities and then follow this uh you know to love everyone then we love krishna it does not just practically does not happen with me but i'm sure through your prayers and through your guidelines maybe something can change uh you know like uh you know, association of devotees so important. So I thought I'll bring forth this question. And you had also mentioned about the three modes of material nature. So in connection to your class, if you can uh, uh, explain how we can see, uh, you know, like equal vision. Because when we associate, when we see those qualities of tamasik in this, we are just not able to. There's like a big, uh, you know, like a, something comes in front, and you just can't kind of connect to the person. Or uh,
1: does it make sense, Mataji, what I'm asking? Absolutely, makes sense. Okay. Absolutely. Thank so you, Mother. Think yeah. about the gunas as some kind of drug that people are taking. You know, there's the tamagoon drug, the rajagoon drug, and the sattvagoon drug, and there's mixtures. Like people can mix drugs or mix drugs and alcohol or something like that. So let's say you are walking down the street and you meet somebody who's very intoxicated. But it's someone that you used to know. You knew this person maybe when the person was a child. and But you see them now, you know, completely intoxicated and dirty and rude and nasty. But you remember, oh, I knew this person when they were a child. So although the person has chosen to take the intoxication, that's their choice, most likely. <laughs> Most likely they weren't intoxicated by force Uh, and the intoxication is covering them with so many bad qualities. A huge number of crimes, huge percentage of crimes are done under the influence of intoxication. Still you understand that there's some person under there. So the modes are covering. They never really affect the soul. The soul is not touched ever by the modes. Ever. The soul is always pure. The soul chooses to go under the covering of the modes. That's the fault of the soul. That's the fault, the mistake that the soul is making. It's not actually an intrinsic fault, but that's the mistake the soul is making. That I'm going to put myself under the control of the modes. Like a person makes a decision. I'm going to take some drug. I mean, even in ordinary life, you know, when, you, when we are hungry, tired, thirsty, sick, we're not as nice of people. Generally speaking. We don't care as much about other people when we have strong physiological needs that are unmet. Our, our brains are actually wired that way. So if I'm very thirsty, my brain is telling me forget about anybody else and get some water or you're going to die. If I'm very tired, my brain is saying forget about anybody else. Go get some sleep or you're going to die. My, my brain is sending out chemical signals saying, put self-preservation first, put self-preservation first, or you're going to die. And so these chemicals show up as an an irritation and a lack of patience with others. We've all experienced this. If we're very, very tired, or we're very hungry, or we're very thirsty, or if something else in our life is upsetting us, then our ability to be kind and caring and patient with other people is compromised. I mean, one can rise above it, but it, it's hard. And if we're at all self-reflective people, we may be able to say to someone, look, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really, really tired, and so I'm not really able to pay attention to what you need right now. I, 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 I understand that you need some time and attention from me, but I am just too tired. I'm just not able to focus. I'm really sorry, I need to get some sleep. So if we're at all self-aware people, we can say something like that, and the other person hopefully will understand. But if we're not very self-aware, we just grouch at them. Oh, leave me alone. Why are you bothering me? So the tiredness is a kind of covering. Yeah? And we, we cut people slack all the time in our lives. Oh, he's just tired. She's just hungry. She's sick. Oh, he had a bad day. We do that all the time. That's not the real person. They're they're being affected by something that's external to them. So it's exactly the same with the modes. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to go hang out with some grumpy person. If somebody's really grumpy because they're hungry and tired or they're really grumpy because they're covered by tamagoon, we may not want to just, like, hang out with them at that time. But we can see that it's a covering. And honestly, if we're not floating in unlimited ecstasy at every moment, that means that we're covered by the gunas. And that means, if I'm covered by the gunas, that means I'm causing distress to other living beings too, You know, it's not just that other people are acting in ways that disturb me. I'm disturbing others. I may be not aware of it. Or I may be aware of it only slightly. As Someone put it to me the other day, probably each of us is the bad guy in somebody else's story. There are definitely people out in the world for whom I'm the bad guy in their story. They don't like me. I did or said something that hurt their feelings, and they're upset with me, and they think I'm a bad person. There are definitely people like that in the world. Absolutely, definitely, no question about it. So that that helps us get a little humility too. You know, it's just... We have to choose our association by who's going to be benefited, who's going to benefit us in Krishna consciousness or who I can benefit in Krishna consciousness. That's a practical matter. But everyone is a pure soul. Their, their choices to go under the modes of nature doesn't change them as a soul. Now having said that, sometimes it's very challenging to do this and the reason it's very challenging to do this is because of our attachment to our own sensory and mental pleasure and our own sense of existence with our material identity. So if somebody behaves in such a way through you know, their attitude, their speech or their actions that impinge on my being able to enjoy, enjoy something with my senses or that impinges on my having mental peace or that impinges on, you know, something that I want to to have or that I think I should have in the world, it's very hard for me to feel love and affection for that person. I I label that person as an enemy. And that's a real challenge. You know, but even Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who curse you, bless those who curse you, do good to those who harm you. So yes, it's a challenge. But first thing is to step back and say, why am I feeling hatred towards this person? Or why am I feeling antagonism toward this person? And the answer is going to be always, Because they've interfered with some sensory or mental enjoyment that I've wanted to have. Now, we might try to cover that with some spiritual thing. They're interfering with my service to Krishna, or something like that. Or they're a blasphemer against God. But, you know, we're not going to feel hatred for them (laughs) for that. Isha Upanishad says that, you know, a higher level person doesn't hate anyone or any being. Now, trying to repress the hatred that we feel is not going to work. That's aversion. So we can just accept. Okay, there's some feeling of hatred in the body, just like we accept there's feelings of fear or anger or whatever in the body. But we see, oh, this is a reaction of the of the brain and the body to somebody perceived as it as an impediment, and we kind of step back and I'm a soul and they're a soul. I might not want to hang out with them. (laughs) I might not want to have a conversation with them. But they're also a soul. And then you can kind of look for that. How is this person looking for Krishna? They may be looking for Krishna in a very wrong way. What I found very helpful in this regard is Prabhupada's preface to the Nectar Devotion. Where Prabhupada talks about how everything that everyone does is trying to enjoy rasa. And Krishna is Akhila Rasa Mita so everything that everyone does is trying to enjoy some aspect of Krishna. Now the devotees try to enjoy rasa, as Prabhupada will say in other places, with Krishna or through Krishna. And the materialistic people are trying to enjoy rasa by taking Krishna's energy and trying to enjoy it separately from him. have a difference between, if you invite me to prasadam at your house, do I sit down and have a meal with you, so I'm enjoying with you? I'm enjoying the food, but I'm enjoying that with you. Or do I, you invite me to your house, I come in your house, I go in the refrigerator, I steal food, and I run out the door with the food that I've stolen. And then I eat that food. So either way, I'm enjoying your food. But one way I'm enjoying your food with you that you've given me voluntarily, and the other way I'm enjoying your food that I've stolen from you and you're not going to be pleased with me and I'm not going to enjoy the food as much. Uh, So that's the difference. But that everything that everyone's doing, they're trying to enjoy rasa and they're all trying to enjoy rasa that is ultimately Krishna's rasa. Lecture, I heard Prabhupada talk about this. He was saying about trying to enjoy the ghastly rasa and he was saying how he once saw this man enjoying killing chickens and watching them run around headless. And he said this man was trying to enjoy the ghastly rasa. He said, if you really want to enjoy the ghastly rasa, the rasa of horror, then you can meditate on Lord Nasingadev. But when you see this, that everything everyone's trying to do and everything everyone's doing, they are wanting to enjoy rasa. Sometimes they're wanting to enjoy the rasa of lamentation. Sometimes they're wanting to enjoy the rasa of anger. and to see therefore that everyone is looking for Krishna they don't know where Krishna is they don't know how to find him but everyone is looking for Krishna and in that way we are one we are the same I am not better than anyone I am not worse than anyone we are all looking for Krishna and one can have compassion that here's someone who's looking for Krishna. So I gave you about seven or eight different methods by which you could do that. And I have a lot on my plate today (laughs) that, (laughs) that I really do need to get going. But thank you so much for this opportunity.